we begin a scene with Eve Genoard. This was a pleasant surprise. I didn't know Eve would be part of this story. I mean, I always assumed we would get to see like Dallas being brought up from like the depths of the sea, but I didn't think it would be this soon. I quite like Eve, so I was happy to see the story from a vantage point again. As mentioned before, Eve is currently looking for Dallas and is at a construction site that just so happens to be doing work in the area where Dallas was drowned. It actually took Eve like one year and a half to actually find Dallas and now, finally, she's able to meet him. At least, that's what she's hoping. A worker runs towards her, stating that they picked up the oil rig that they were looking for. But what they found were humans. Eve assumed this was her brother, but when she got there, there was a complication. Multiple workers were on the ground, knocked unconscious. It wasn't the sight she was expecting. She also notices that one of the barrels that should contain Dallas or his two friends is empty. That definitely causes her concern. She examines the other two barrels to find his two friends, but unfortunately for Eve, Dallas is nowhere to be seen. As you're reading this scene in this novel, you get to like really feel for Eve and how she's like feeling at that moment. Like the anticipation of seeing Dallas again for her sake, and then feeling confused when the construction workers have been taken out. To dispel my confusion, I needed an answer. And my first thought was, well, did Dallas go on a rampage? My next thought was, well, he's been suffocating for so long, and that must have been like an awful experience. Could he be like really unhinged now? But I honestly thought it would have been more likely that he was like afraid of everything or terrified. Maybe he knocked everyone out and ran away. But we come to find out what happened. Turns out some lady with a spear stick weapon knocked out all the construction workers and then took Dallas. This obviously comes as quite a shock to Eve. You really understand the um, like the why when I was so close vibe from her. She really was close to her goal. That being said, she does immediately push herself forward and thinks in a positive manner. That at the very least, he's alive now. That's one step forward. But Eve does have a really good question. No one else should, by all accounts, know about Dallas. Only her and the Gandors should. So who could it be? I thought for a bit, but since Firo knows Dallas... Most likely the Martillo family knows of Dallas too. Could someone connected to the Martillos have gone to steal Dallas? The value of Dallas is his immortality fundamentally, so I guess it would be people who know he's a model. I can't narrow down who that could actually be, but for now, colour me intrigued. Once again, glad we got to see Eve again, despite her not reuniting with a brother. Now we touch him with Dallas immediately, and we get to see him recount himself drowning in excruciating detail. The author writes that the water filled the can quickly, and then the next thing he knows, it was immediately full. This really helps to show like what it's like for water to enter like a confined space at rapid speeds. Immediately, you get the feeling that Dallas is screwed. Then we get even more details, how the air was being pushed out of his lungs and stomach, etc. The real kicker was how the author changed the focus to taste. Initially, it was the taste of mud in the water, but after that, it was the taste of his own blood. That transition was actually kind of jarring. Knowing full well that Dallas's body was getting completely ruptured in that moment was chilling. And then repeating the it hurts, it hurts, it hurts, made me have a visual in my mind of Dallas just constantly getting crushed and in pain from every point of his body. A pretty graphic image and a vivid image, and it came all from these pages in writing. Lastly, Dallas explains when someone experiences pain on that level, everything goes black, but it's not just like they're asleep or anything like that. I find it quite difficult to even understand what that would be like personally, but it does say that all of your senses go dark. Dallas does say he remembers this scene viscerally, and if he thinks back to it, those feelings of complete fear come back. 
Now that makes total sense to me. Experiencing something like this would be traumatic to anyone. This scene was a really vivid description of what it would be like to experience like physical suffering on that level. I was kind of glad that he did black out at some point because pain on that level for like an entire year would be like when you're fully conscious, then that would be like there would not be any greater help. Overall, it made me feel like slightly disturbed, but at the same time, I was in awe at the description of the scene. Honestly, the way Dallas is talking about it, I thought he would sound even more scared and horrified. But yeah, great scene. Moving on, Dallas is awoken to the sound of a guy speaking. He's talking a lot of smack about Dallas and how he looked dumb suffocating in a can of water. He says this while Dallas is incapacitated on a bed. We find out later this guy's name is Tim. Firstly, I thought that Dallas would have changed at least a little bit after drowning and suffocating. Like it was such intense suffering that I thought he would have changed a bit. Like I thought he would have developed some small level of humility. Or just a bit more fear or a feeling of just being glad to be alive. But right off the bat, he wants to hit the guy in front of him in the face. He glares at him. Because he's so annoyed at him. He even says the following line. If I'm really a free man can wait until I figure out who this loser is. So he's been trapped underwater for ages. And him being a free man can wait? Why can that wait? You should be bursting at the seams to get free, and yet he's now focused on hurting the dude in front of him just because he talked a little shit. Not only that, there's no like sincerity towards anyone but Eve. For example, when he thinks of his old man and brother, he just cares about their inheritance. He only wants to get a souvenir for Eve. And further to that, what is important to him is getting revenge. He lists out everyone he wants to kick the ass of. If I was him, the Gandos would be at the top of my list if they made me drown for a year, but... No, his primary target is Firo. Dallas is such a clown. He's actually, like, a terrible, terrible person. I mean, we knew that, but jeez, he's, he's bad. Moving on, he does have, like, an ear for money, so he's interested in what Tim has to say. So when Tim mentions about a, like, money-making opportunity, all of a sudden, he's listening more. But Tim threatens him, saying he better do what he's told, or else there will be someone who will be in the can in Notion. But he didn't mean Dallas again. He meant his sister, Eve. Now this sets Dallas off. Not in some rage-filled fury, but anger that has an undercurrent of deep, deep fear. He does genuinely care about his sister. Apparently, he was supposed to get rid of all family attachments when he left home, so he's like surprised that he cares so much, but the point still stands that he does. It's through the mention of Eve that Dallas self-reflects a little. He says with the way he has lived, he's put himself on many bad lists, but that's on him, not on Eve. What's interesting here is that the only redeeming quality about Dallas is that he values Eve. I know I just talked about how much of a dope I think Dallas is, and I still think he is, but I can't ignore that thinking of Eve actually causes him to self-reflect. It could be pointing to his sister being the key to awakening some sort of change in Dallas. Or am I just being too optimistic? Who knows? Anyways, Tim does comment on this as well. He says, family ties, huh? Lucky. Frankly, if you've got something like that, I'm jealous. When I heard this comment talking about how someone is jealous of having family ties, I immediately thought of Tok and even Tick too. They both seem to have some sort of yearning for having a genuine family, something real and something authentic. Now other people do arrive on the scene, such as Adele, and they mention that they are Lava, Huey Lafaray's band of psychotic weirdos. As mentioned in a previous episode, Huey is going around trying to find subjects. I think most likely, this group is just a bunch of subjects Huey has gathered, now when we think about the easiest kind of people together into a group, 
Most likely, it would be kids without parents, right? Since Tim also seems to have a potential insecurity in regards to like family ties, I do wonder if the whole group of lava are like orphans or outcasts who never had like great family relationships. Like that could be it. Anyhow, overall, this scene was good. I'm still kind of surprised how silly Dallas can be, and I'm really keen to like see more of Lava. Always keen to see more of Huey um, because of all the hype. Uh, really excited for the next scene. We then start a new chapter. It begins with Lux scolding Maria about the way she's been like taking care of people. Apparently, a lot of her efforts have resulted in a lot of unnecessary destruction. She does rebut here and there, but she's not contending his points. She's just rattling off random excuses. Luck tends to have trouble keeping Maria in line. She blames her swords, in fact, for her actions. She says that when she unsheaths, they just let loose. This is very reminiscent of the lesson that was like taught to her by the killer that raised her. He tells her basically the same thing, to let the blade just kind of act on its own. Luck also can't ask for help from his brothers to scold her because Berger just doesn't care and Keith is a man of very few words. When Luck tells her to be more careful, she even yells like boring, 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 like repeatedly. It's pretty obvious that she likes things that are flashy, exciting, like heads falling off, blood gushing everywhere, and the general idea of the sword just cutting on its own seems to fall in line with this. She's very impulsive. That being said, Luck does have some work for her to do. Basically, there have been like some town thugs who have been like selling like bootleg liquor and things like that um, in the Gandals territory. Essentially, with the prohibition about to end, the Gandals would also need to find a different way to make money, but seeing these thugs essentially stealing their revenue spits on their image. Normally, they would have just crushed them, but apparently they have amassed like some level of strength, so he wants Maria to scare them a little to like make them stand down. During this whole scene, she's to be like Tick's guard during the negotiations. As Luck mentions Tick, we zoom over to him and he's cutting flowers that he received from Edith. Maria zooms over to him and Tick starts talking about the flowers in front of him and he says Edith told him to be a florist. But given the way Tick's been cutting the flowers, he probably shouldn't be. Being kind of tone deaf, Maria says she wants to cut something less delicate than a flower. She seems to be very keen for the new job. Something interesting is that Tick almost like flirts with Maria. He tells her that her flowers look good on her. Maria just says thanks and because of the compliment, she finally actually has a good look at the vase of the flowers. From this interaction, we can see that Maria is like kind of self-absorbed as well. It's only after Tick mentions the flowers look good on her that she actually gains interest in them. It seems things need to be about her or sound interesting to like capture her attention. But being as impatient as she is, she grabs Tick by the arm and goes to like drag him off. Tick goes along, but before he leaves, he talks about how he wonders if the flowers also have families. And so they do her head off. We cut back to Luck and his men, and Luck notices that his men are relying on Maria too much. She is their strongest fighter despite her personality. One of the men even says that she could probably just kill the Martillo Capo if she wanted to. Luck becomes cold with that remark, but he also mentions that the Martillo are weak. They have Ronnie Shadow? Someone as strong as Vino, apparently. Yoguruma can't be dealt with easily either. Um, it also says that as if he's like talking to himself, the same can be said for Firo Pochinese. In Volume 4, Luck does compare himself to Firo when he gets his like throat slit. I do wonder if Firo is someone Luck is constantly comparing himself to. He did mention that Firo would not like allow something like that to happen. I wonder if we'll see like more of their dynamic 
and what Luck actually thinks about Fira because we haven't seen them interact too much. Luck's also like a pretty young guy and Fira is quite young so perhaps seeing someone not too far from his age so full of life makes him self-conscious? We'll have to see where that goes. Overall, I enjoyed seeing the dynamic that Maria brings. She's definitely quite a crazy one. You get the feeling that she goes after what she deems to be interesting, no matter what, and to slow that down is like a buzzkill. The feeling I get from her is very frantic. Like I could have a conversation with her, and then all of a sudden she would see something more interesting, and then woof, like she's just gone. But you can tell that she also doesn't want to take any like responsibility for how she affects others negatively. Like the idea that her sword just swings can be seen as an excuse, but it's also an idea that's like deeply in, like bred into her. I'm interested to see where her character goes. Will she learn to put more like pressure onto herself? Will she learn to put more like pressure onto herself? Or will we learn about her philosophy and just her like characterization? Not every character has to develop. Um, moving on from Maria, let's talk about Tick. I like the vibe he emits within this scene. You get the feeling that he's mostly just in his own world. Furthermore, it's definitely true that his innocent smiling face and the scissors he holds constantly don't match like visually you really do get the impression of something feeling like misplaced. That if you went close, you don't know what side you'll get. The innocent kid or the scissors dripped in blood. But overall, he does seem pretty chill. Not only that, quite sensitive. He's snipping flowers and then thinking about if they have families too. So it's pretty clear that his childhood wounds in regards to family have not healed yet. And he's very focused on family. I'm keen to see more of Tick. I'm pretty invested in him now. Um, So overall, this was really good. Thanks for listening.